Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the next episode, episode two of the Panjoy Podcast. I'm Luke Coffey. I'm Curtis Grace. And we're glad you're joining back with us again to begin the next step in telling the story of our 2012 deployment to Panjoy, Afghanistan. Uh, so last time, if you're following on with that first episode, we talked a lot about the background of uh, Panjoy. We talked a lot about the kind of fighting that we did, the IEDs. We talked about Sparrow and Gar a little bit, and we gave you a kind of brief personal history of how we ended up there. And so we ended off by segueing into the the topic of today's episode, which is that that first firefight. Uh, you know, for the infantrymen, that first firefight is an important event for obvious reasons, and uh, it's something that really sticks with you, and, and you really think about it a lot as you progress through your deployment, but also as you progress through life. And it's uh, it's kind of a monumental, it's kind of a monumental moment in, in a man's life. Wouldn't you agree, Curtis? Yeah. Well, I don't know about every man's life, uh, but but certainly from the moment you get to you know infantry OSIT, like you're bred to look for that uh, that that first firefight during that CIB. And um, we we were having a conversation the other day about the difference between a cab and a CIB, and how fundamentally. Sorry, my fellow with 11 Bravos, there's no difference. It's the same award. But it, we wear it differently because the infantryman trains for that. That is all they want, to earn their CIB, to validate their MOS and their purpose in life. That's all they care about. But as a former Pogue who earned their cab, it was like ancillary to my job, like I was stoked to go into combat and I already had a CIB. So maybe that made it a little bit different, but it was different. It wasn't like achieving a cab was the the purpose of me being that job. Whereas to be a, a combat, to have a combat infantry badge as an infantryman, like that, that's your purpose. And you went through all yeah. of your basic training and stuff, envious of the people that had them. Yeah, for sure. And it's something that when you're a fresh private showing up at a unit, it's definitely something that you want because all the senior guys, at least when we were going in, <laughs> all the senior guys had it. And I imagine there's guys now who are probably 10 years into a career that don't have one, you know, which is pretty wild to think about. But yeah, I mean, you, you show up to the unit and that's the thing you want, that, that coveted combat instruments badge. It's what you cut your teeth by. Um, of course, on the back end, of our experiences you realize that just because somebody has a cab or has a cib doesn't necessarily mean that they were in the thick of it um but you know it's one of those things where you know the military of all the stuff that and i'm not the kind of guy who likes to wear his military service on his shoulder uh, even though i know we're doing a podcast about it <laughs> which i'm sure people who know me well are probably kind of surprised by this uh, by me turning out to do this i know curtis is probably having a good laugh at my expense on that behalf. Oh, yeah. But, um, you know, the one thing that I earned in the military, one the one medal or the one ribbon or whatever that I was given to me that I really felt like I earned was my CIB. And I'm actually proud of the CIB for sure um, because we didn't get ours from a mortar landing 300 meters outside of our cop. No, and that's I think that's one of the more, like, toxic things in the whole veteran community is, uh, oh, well, mm. you got this and it was bullshit or you got that and it was bullshit or... Um, cab isn't the same as a CIB and you have to, there's different rules for them or, or whatever. It's just the bickering back and forth that it gets. But at the end of the day, like, you know what you deserved, uh, you know what you earned and I can, and I know the people that I served with, what they earned and what they deserved. Mm -hmm. 
and everybody on April 25th, 2012 earned their CIV. <laughs> yeah. And everybody on April, April 5th, 2012 earned their caps, our medics, That's true. our 13 Fox trots, mm-hmm. you know, and even one of our mechanics was out there with us on this patrol, Sarn Orball. Was he? Uh, That's right. He was. I forgot yep, about that. He, he wanted to get his cab and we were almost guaranteed to take contact. So he came with us to get his cab and he ended up. <laughs> Picking hell of a fight to participate in. <laughs> Little did he know he'd take a freaking RPG to a bulldozer six months later. Yeah, right. Uh, shout out to the man. He was a good dude. We liked yep. him. Yep. So last time we we discussed this um, this mythos of the, of the two eight grid line. Uh, we kind of gave everybody a brief background on that. It was essentially the line in the sand that the unit we replaced. Uh, warned us about you know that was their their magical line that as soon as they crossed that line they would get into some contact they'd start getting into taliban country um and so naturally our first thing we wanted to do was go over there and kick the hornet's nest a little bit well naturally the first thing captain kitching wanted to do was go over <laughs> yeah. and kick the hornet's nest <laughs> yes Captain Kitching wanted to go over and kick the hornet's nest, and uh, and so as we mentioned before, he actually came on this patrol with us. Um, he, did, he did, right? Yeah, he did. That okay, was one of like yeah. the warning signs. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't anywhere around him during the fight, so I couldn't quite remember. Um, so yeah, we we had this this kind of weird little patrol. This one, of, this is the first longer patrol we did. Up to that point, we had essentially done little foot patrols kind of making semicircles to the east. We haven't quite gone far enough to find that uh, special little tree line um, where, you know, where the Taliban would always shoot at us. We did take, we did one patrol where they, I think they tried to maneuver on us and we had ISR on station and they were like, you're getting pushed on, maneuvered on, but we managed to get out of there before they started shooting. So, yeah, you know, what, what were we doing on this mission, man? Because my, my memory's not super clear on the details. So we were going to scout the location for a mountaintop or hilltop OP on a little scrag of a rock called Zangabad Gar. Um, mm. Whereas like Spurwangar was a fake hill that was built by the Russians and Mazamgar was a natural mountain, essentially. Zangabad Gar was just like this little spine that popped out of the middle of the valley, kind of out of place to be honest, but definitely natural. And they mm-hmm. wanted us to go and see how feasible it would be to put an OP up there. And I'm not sure why they didn't just have one of the 800 aircraft that were flying over every day take a look at it and tell them what was obvious, which was that no, n- no, <laughs> you couldn't. There's nothing up <laughs> right. there. It was like a, a razor edge uh, uh, spine of a rock. Mm-hmm. But I think it would, probably the purpose really was just to go get in a gunfight. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we struck out, um, we mentioned again, we'll reiterate here, we struck out west on what was affectionately known as the Taliban Highway, and it was this car-wide dirt road. There's a picture of it on Instagram, um, if you guys want to go check it out, uh, where, where it leads out the west side of Sperwangar. And we walked along that road, and we this is before we learned the lesson of don't take the roads. And so we just we moved out. We left out good and early that morning. And we just started walking, and we walked for a good while. I mean, I want to say it was four or five clicks. Yeah, I mean, if memory serves correctly, Sperwangar sits on like the 3-1 or 3-2 grid line. I have to go back and look. Um, mm-hmm. It was at least two clicks um, on the road. Yeah. And it was slow moving because uh, we did have the mine detecting equipment. We were 
Uh, I think at that time we still had the Afghans walking up front. That was before they decided they didn't want to do that anymore. Um, <laughs> so Afghans were leading. We had mine equipment. equipment. We were, we were fast because we were taking the roads, but we were slow because we didn't know what we were doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We had only been there a couple of three weeks actually on yeah. the cop itself. And we had just ripped out with the, with the other unit. So they had just gone like the last of those guys had just left maybe a few days before we launched this yeah. patrol. So there were a few walking into this thing. There were a few signs that are kind of staples when you're fighting an insurgency. Uh, one is the lack of civilians. When you move into a, vi- a village or you, you're walking along and you start to notice there's no kids out playing or there's no people just going about their daily lives, that's a big red flag. And that kind of makes the, the hair on the back of your neck stand up because it's this eerie ambiance in that you're in a place where you can see that people are doing stuff. You know, there's p- p- uh, cooking pans laying out or maybe even like the bedroll from that night hadn't been stowed away. And so it's like a ghost town, yeah. essentially. And so that's a, that's a big warning sign for, you know, shit's about to go down. Yeah, and, and to kind of paint the picture about this road that we were walking down, to the south it was almost unobstructed to the mountains. Wide open fields mm-hmm. mostly. You didn't have the grape rows. There wasn't a lot of trees. But to the north it was heavily vegetated. Uh, we basically walked alongside a canal the entire time. And on the other side of the canal was your grape rows, your agricultural areas, your villages, your plots, all the kind of stuff we talked about in the last episode was across this canal. So we're kind of like we we're walking on the outskirts of town. Uh, and we should have seen people. We should have seen people in the fields. We should have seen people just across the canal or driving back and forth on motorcycles. Like It's a heavily used road, which is part of why we felt comfortable taking it, which even in hindsight probably wasn't smart. <laughs> Yeah, um, and that's something we kind of learned in the long run. Like if it's something that's really heavily used by oh, the Taliban, for one, but also the civilian population, you could more or less walk on it in relative safety. Just don't step to the sides and through gaps, you know. Yeah. But we still avoided those routes because they were just natural points of ambush for the Taliban as well. Leading up to this story, um, people need to understand that we never got the one up on the Taliban because... You know, because of how the terrain worked and because of how they were able to spot us, maneuver around us, we pretty much got ambushed every single time. And even when we would try to ambush them, we try to get the one up on them, it, we usually weren't very successful. Um, there's only a couple times where we actually like stumbled into some Taliban, and that was just by happenstance. Yeah, I mean, there were a few times we surprised them, but I don't think we, we ever successfully like fired the first shot in anger. No, and I think we surprised them this day. Uh, and surprise usually worked to our advantage because instead of being able to lay in a really intricate ambush, which we walked into a few of those um, throughout the deployment, uh, they had to kind of scramble together and whip together a quick plan. And so it usually made for a less intricate ambush, but it still, you know, they would still get the one up. It was always that first opening round, a salvo of PKM or AK fire. A lot of times PKM, I feel like it opened up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was a good weapon. I mean, because once we got to cover, they weren't going to be able to continue to use that weapon effectively. They, were, they basically had one chance to, to hit us with that weapon. Then mm-hmm. it was better for them to use those lightweight AK- AKs that they could maneuver around with us on. Yeah. So, you know, we were walking along the Taliban Highway, and we began to notice on the horizon kites. And one of the things, there's two things that we had been kind of briefed on by the previous unit. In retrospect, what's your opinion on this, Curtis? Because in retrospect, 
I kind of wonder the validity of it. Was it just people out playing? I think sometimes it was kids just out playing with kites, and maybe sometimes they actually used them to signal our general area. Yeah, and it's hard to say. Uh, on on this yeah. day, I'm thinking it was probably a signaling device because they were kites in the middle yeah, of town, so. and like no one flies a kite in the middle of like a town. You generally you go to parks, you go to wide open spaces for that kind of thing. And they were flying inside Pymaluke, which we'll probably post some pictures yeah. of that in the future. But it was a pretty dense collot. It was one of the bigger collots right outside the gate. So for them to be flying kites there, it just didn't seem normal. But definitely later in the yeah. point, we would get people saying, oh, they're flying kites. We're like, yeah, I know they are. There's like four six-year-olds standing in a field flying a kite. That's That feels pretty normal <laughs> yeah. to me. Yeah. And another thing they would do, and this is something we encountered on our first patrol uh, when we made a kind of a semicircle to the east, is the men would come out on the roof and chew up the pigeons. They would have mm-hmm. these pigeons all over their roofs. And so they'd come out and chew up the pigeons, and they would fly up, and that was kind of used as a signaling device um, to tell, you know, to kind of talk people onto our general area. Which I think is hilarious because this wasn't back in 1945. They have cell phones. <laughs> They, yeah, they had cell phones. They had icons. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I agree. I think that probably yeah. a part of that was signaling, but probably the majority of it was people attaching that to thinking they were signaling. Because we, we intercepted enough internet enemy comms and cell phones and stuff like that to know that they were using that kind of thing. They weren't always trying to use like archaic modes of communication, but we can't rule out that they were. So... You know, we're, we're pushing west. Nobody's out there. It's uh, it's hot. <laughs> this is April 25th, and it was already up into the 90s. Yeah, it was a warm day. Um, during the day, it was almost getting up to that 100-degree range. And so, you know, Curtis and I were actually in very different parts of the formation on this. Um, we had already been briefed to walk in a file, so we weren't trying to walk in a wedge. We weren't trying to do any kind of formation. We were just walking in our file. And I, my fire team... And the A&A guys that were around us, and we had one of the military working dog handlers with us, um, a dude named Dwayne Jones, uh, and then another fella, Chris Royball, was in the back with yep. y'all. Uh, so we actually had two dog handlers out Which was us. unusual. And um, it was unusual, yeah. And so we were pushing up, and we, we took a long halt. We took a big, long pause. I can't remember why. I think it was a map check. Because I think we were approaching okay. the point of the patrol where we were going to have to turn north. And we were starting to look mm-hmm. for a good point to cross that canal. Mm-hmm. And it was around this time that the A&A really started to get kind of sketched out. Yeah. Uh, at the back where I was, we had a, a tra- trailing element of uh, Afghan National Army soldiers. And mm-hmm. like we said, it was pretty sparsely populated. So I think it was second or third back in the American file. We start hearing the ANA making a ruckus. They're yelling. I'm um, looking back. Uh, like, what's going on? I think I was back with uh, Sergeant Ott. I think he was back there with us. And mm-hmm. we're, we don't have a terp- an interpreter with us, so we're not 100% sure what's going on. We just hear them yelling. Uh, and then we hear a single gunshot, just one, which was very clearly uh, from one of the M16s of the Afghan National Army soldiers. So we hear the yeah. gunshot. Inter- interpreter runs back, talks to them. They say, he said, yeah. Somebody ran across the road, and they told him to stop, and he, they didn't listen, so they fired a warning shot. We're like, okay, weird, but, you sure. know, <laughs> we would come to find out that uh, 
whether it be negligent discharges or warning shots, the ANA fired random single shots on patrols a lot. Yeah, they did. And so, yeah, we took this long halt, and uh, and I remember vividly <laughs> is I was in a, I was in a bad spot because the the leading element up in front of us, the rest of my fire team was already to like a series of these pillars. They're kind of odd looking. I think what it was is it was an old wall that had just kind of fallen down. And, and so there's about three or four of these pillars that were probably, you know, two to four feet wide. And they were just kind of staggered along the side of the road. And so they were all kind of up there in that general area. And then I looked behind me and I could see the forefront, uh, the foremost person in the rear element. And I was kind of caught between the two. And, uh, and I just remember looking around and I thought, man, like I'm in the wide open here. And I had this instinct, this guttural instinct. And for folks who um, who haven't had these experiences, always trust your gut. <laughs> and so my instinct was to pop a squat. And so I did. I just I, I didn't even get down on my knees. I literally squatted on the heels of my feet. And the second, I wouldn't say the second, but as soon as I popped a squat, I kind of hunkered down. And I would say just a few seconds later, the fucking PKM just opened up right on us, and that kicked off this this firefight. So, um, you know, I knew I was in the open. I knew I was in a bad spot, and so I had this instinct to just run and get to cover, which is probably our training kicking in. <laughs> and so I hauled ass, and I hauled ass to those pillars where the rest of the fire team was at. And by that point, everybody was trying to get some fire on, and I got up there, and, uh, and there's one of the guys in the unit, if, if you can trust what he has to say, he claims that there were rounds kicking up around my feet. Um, I didn't hear any rounds going over my head, but I honestly think it was probably just the dust from my boots getting yeah. kicking up where I was hauling ass, you know. And so I get up there, I get behind that first pillar, and I pivot, and I'm starting to try and find that enemy fighting position. And for those of you who have, who have been in these places where they use those mud walls, there's a very distinctive shape. Uh, when a machine gun or, or a weapon is laid up on top of a wall and that muzzle, the, the pressure from that muzzle blast will kick up a really distinctive V shape. And so I remember I turned on my hill and I saw that V shape and I put my ACOG on it and just started squeezing rounds, man. I probably squeezed off 10 or 15 rounds and, uh, and I think that fairly successfully suppressed the enemy. And I'm sure other people were shooting at that, you know, up at that fighting position too. I think I know for sure there's PKM that opened up on us, and then there was um, an AK. I think there's two guys in that firing position. Yeah, I mean, it, towards the back, we just had the PKM that was shooting at us. And when I say mm -hmm. shooting at us, in hindsight, think about all the other engagements we had on that deployment. It wasn't directly at us because there's there's very mm -hmm. distinctive sounds. Uh, when a bullet goes by you and the more <laughs> the more times you get shot at the better you get at figuring out how close they are uh there's a scene mm -hmm. in black hawk down where they're sitting on the corner and uh they're getting shot at and the ranger tells his buddy he's like no 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 like it's you know a bang means it's far and a zip means it's close or what i can't remember the the line but there, there, were, there are differences <laughs> like and it all has to do with mm -hmm. uh, that bullet breaking the sound barrier and how close it is to your face okay um yeah. Also, the, when the bullet passes a certain point and it's no longer moving supersonic and it starts to tumble, it makes kind of like a zzz uh, sound. So anyway, the point is, we, I wasn't hearing those snaps and cracks and zzz. So I knew in hindsight they weren't directly firing at our position in the back. 
I think if if they were shooting at me, I mean, it kind of makes sense because I was running across open space, but I'm not going to sit here and say that they were. But I think one of the things that really saved me is that just to my right, there was a small wall about three foot tall. And so when I popped a squat, I don't, I don't doubt that I popped out of that guy's line of sight because that PKM would have kind of been back to my yeah. right um, when, the, when it kicked off. So, yeah. So what did you guys do after that first contact? Did you just start shooting at anything? That moved <laughs> so, I mean, it was such a foreign thing to us. We didn't really know what was happening. Uh, so we'd heard that mm-hmm. warning shot. And then we heard that incoming fire, which if you've never been shot at, you expect incoming fire to sound very different uh, like it is in the movies. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's different because mm-hmm. now you're not hearing the sound of the gun go off first. You're hearing the sound of the bullets going past you first. And it's really kind of it throws yeah, yeah. Your, your brain off. So we didn't know what was going on. <laughs> and then, yeah. like, we had this kind of conflict in training. Like Luke mentioned, he ran to cover because that was, like, the, the core of his infantry training. But we had just gone through all of this counter ID training and said, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. So like I'm standing in the middle of the road and we take fire. So I just like drop down to the ground and I'm like, oh crap, I'm in the middle of nowhere. So I pop back up. I was like, oh shit, they can see me. So I pop right back down and took a knee and I was like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah. And right in front of us, there was like this mound of dirt and everyone started to run towards that. So I ran up to that mound of dirt uh, with, it was with Perez and... I can't remember who else was there. Uh, Sergeant Rosal or Specialist mm-hmm. Rosales at the time was there. Mm-hmm. So we went up to that. I basically like put my uh, front leg up on the dirt pile, and so I could get up on it a little bit, get my muzzle clear, and I fired you know, probably a magazine at that V that you were talking yeah. about because we could see that against that wall. Yeah. So we shot at that V. Uh, I think I I think I dumped an entire mag. And then just yeah. then I dropped down and cover because at that point we could kind of figure yeah. we weren't being directly fired at. So we just kind of took our positions. And then once we were no longer shooting anymore, we could hear that you guys were. We could hear the front of the element uh, still in a gunfight, but we weren't in a gunfight anymore. And <laughs> Perez next to me just is like, dude, we just got our CIBs. <laughs> like in the middle of a gunfight like we could get killed at any moment of course and like this guy's over here just like cheese and biggest grin on his face ever just stoked because he just earned a cib and that's all he cared about yeah and that says a lot it about does. it right there you know little perez he was a machine we loved yep. him he was he's a great little dude we might we might be able to get him I think on so. the horn juan rambo yeah Juan Rambo, yeah, he was affectionately called Juan, Juan Rambo for his habit to literally just dump every single round out of his saw the second oh, yeah. it took contact. And it was awesome. <laughs> Which yeah. was good. Yeah, it made it yeah. better for him. He didn't carry as much for ammo back. So one of the things that um, when I look back on this firefight that I realized worked to our advantage was our inexperience. Because the next evolution of this firefight at the time when it was just going on up front where we started getting hit really hard is I didn't realize just how bad it was. Um, cause it was, it turned into a real shit show up front. And so Curtis was talking about the sounds that bullets make when they fly past your head, but there's also a very distinguishable sound of a bullet making an impact on a hard surface close to you. <laughs> and I think the closest thing that I can think of is if you're on a construction site and you're framing up a house and you take a sheet of OSB board and you just like drop it from the first floor onto onto some flooring, like some OSB board or plywood, whatever people use. And that if it lands really good and flat, mm-hmm. you get that really distinctive smack. 
it's like a smaller version of that sound. <laughs> and, um, and so, like I said, we suppressed this position, and then I remember I tucking in real close behind that um, pillar and reloading, getting my new mag in, my fresh mag up, and then I just started kind of scanning around. And uh, what happened was to my right was Jones, and Jones, our new uh, Navy dog handler, was in the prone. And if my memory serves me correctly, I should have asked him this today, but I forgot to. He actually saw two dudes come into an alleyway. And it's also important that we point out how rare it was to actually see the Taliban. Um, if you were lucky, you would see that V. You know, that was pretty good. If you could find that fighting position, then you could do some work. But for the most part, we never saw them because, you know, they were so good at using fighting positions. They were so good at hitting and running and changing and moving all the time uh, that it was hard to get eyes on. Well, and the whole AO is basically a freaking you know, a trench network. Yeah, exactly. So they could pop up, squeeze off a couple of rounds, and move on, move 15, 20 meters down the road and do the same thing. And so Dwayne saw these two Taliban fighters come out, and they started spraying at us with AK. And it was at that moment, they started getting that smack, 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 you know, that, that crack of the bullets hitting the wall around us. And like I said, inexperienced, I didn't know at the time that the bullets were just like, I mean, I heard it, obviously, but that sensory experience and that adrenaline rush, it wasn't quite registering that those were bullets impacting the walls yeah. around us and the pillars and everything. And so I remember Dwayne, he was in the prone, and he had his M4, he had the buttstock of his M4 tucked up underneath his arm. I mean, he's pushing himself, his dog is freaking out, <laughs> understandably so. And he's just like, shooting as quick as he can while pushing himself in the prone back to cover. And he's going, shit, 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 shit. And so we just started shooting around. And I, you know, I think that kind of simmered down just a little bit, just for a second or two. And then I started kind of scoping out with my ACOG. And there was this building. And it was a two-story mud hut. It was probably about, probably about 50, 55 meters from the pillars. Maybe a little bit more. 60 meters? I would say 50, actually. 50 to 55 meters. And so I'm scanning the roof of this thing, and I just happened to see this guy. So there was a doorway to the second floor, and there was like this big mud doorway, and it was like a black hole, and I just happened to see this movement. And uh, we will kind of unpolitically correct them. Uh, it's not very PC, but we'll call them what we called them at the time in the jargon, a man dress. So these like white or gray or brown or green, you know, ankle length robes these men would wear we called them man dress because we used them as a descriptor you know so, so 300 meters out there's a military age male and a green man dress and it helps everybody kind of orient themselves so i see the the swirl of this white man dress i remember a black turban and a black beard and i saw an ak-47 and I don't know what this guy was thinking, man. He was—he must have thought he was John Rambo or something because <laughs> he comes out not quite shooting from the hip, but also not really getting up on behind the gun either. He's just kind of starting to, to get it into the action. And so I, I put my ACOG center mass, and I remember I fired six or sorry seven times. It was one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And those last two rounds actually hit the frame of the doorway. And so the dust kick up from those. And I saw this guy kind of like fall back and that AK just uh, fell straight down to the floor. And so that was pretty crazy because it's really hard. Like I said, we barely saw the Taliban. 
And so, and it's definitely really hard to get uh, some good shots in on an actual person. Um, so that was, and when I look back on it now, I realize how, how, how fortunate, is that the right word? How rare it was. <laughs> rare, yeah. How rare it was to actually have that experience in our AO. Um, and so this guy, he's had a commission, and then we are kind of scanning around. The firefight kind of simmers down, and one more dude, we actually saw this guy too on the far end of that compound. He pops his head up. And by that point, everybody was honed in on the compound. Uh, Sergeant Baker, he was lobbing 203. I was trying to talk. I, I told him I just hit that guy in the doorway. I was like, I put a 203 in that doorway. And so he's lobbing the 40 mic mic, and he's overshooting the building. So it's like landing behind it, <laughs> which honestly might have worked out pretty good because I'm sure they were hauling ass out of there, the rest of the guys that were there. And so, yeah, we saw this you know black turban, black beard pop up, and he... He tried to get his gun up, but everybody was onto him at that point, and everybody started, you know, uh, shooting at this dude. And he ducked back down and was gone. We didn't see him again. And that kind of simmered it down. Um, and so the rear unit started pushing up to us. We kind of Oh, you're up, missing the most important part of this then, firefight, man. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what's going on up front after the initial rounds from the PKM. What's going on in the back there? So right around the time you're talking about when it calmed down and the fire, at least the fire, the shooting kind of slowed down and stopped, uh, Lieutenant Chris Persons at the time decided this was a good time to run Battle Drill 1 Alpha, which is where <laughs> one element, which is under fire, maintains contact with the enemy. While the other one flanks around, you've heard that you've heard that term in a movie, I'm sure. Flanks around mm -hmm. and tries to catch him with the pants down. But I don't remember I mentioned earlier. There's a canal running parallel to the road, so we have to get across this canal. Um, at the time, I was at the time, and for like six months, I was the clearing guy, so I had the mine detector. I had a spare one in my bag, pulled it out, and uh, the tenant person's like, "All right, we're gonna go across this canal, and we're gonna run battle drill one out. We're gonna flank him." And I was like, hell yeah, sir, we're going to do this. I got the mine detector out, walk up to the canal, I look at it. it. It is so deep, and it's wide, it's running fast. I'm like, sir, that looks pretty deep. He's like, doesn't matter, we got to cross it. I'm like, all right, let's do it. And I just jumped. <laughs> no one expected me to just jump in. They were like, okay, he's going to crawl in or something. No, no, I was super stoked. Adrenaline's high, I'm the freaking <laughs> king of the world. I'm going to lead this charge, and I'm going to kill the Taliban myself. I'm 5'8 on a good day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I went straight under. Straight down, straight yeah. under the water. It was like six feet deep. Oh, I'd have paid money to and... see it. I'd have paid money to see it. <laughs> I'm six foot deep. I'm wearing a backpack. I have an AT4 strapped to my backpack. I weigh 150 pounds more than I did without clothes on. Like, I was, it was, I went straight to the bottom, like a freaking blob. And then I came up. I was like, oh, fuck. I'm not tall enough for this shit. So mm. I then tried to swim back to the shore. Or actually, I tried to grab reeds on the side. Which, if you've ever been caught in like a fast current, the, the worst thing you can do is try to hold on to something that's not in the water. Because it's the current's mm. going to sweep your feet out from under you and put your head under the water, which is what happened. So I was like, okay, that's a bad idea. So I'm like starting to like drift down the stream here. And I'm like, oh, well, I got to get to the side of, at least get to the side of the river everybody else is on. So I get to the other mm. side and I'm trying to like grab up and climb these things. And one of our soldiers, uh, who was a little bit taller than me, uh, jumped in. He jumped in and he made sure I didn't, you know, go down the stream and kept my head above water and helped me get to that 
that side of the uh, the canal. At which point, uh, Chris Royball, while his dog Bella was trying to bite everything in sight, um, pulled me. They used a, I think they used a mine detector to uh, to kind of pull me over to the bank, and then like three guys helped pull me out, and then pulled the other soldier out too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so we abandoned. We quickly abandoned uh, Battle Drill One Alpha at that point. Battle Drill One Alpha. <laughs> and so that was the point where we're like, okay, we're not going to do that. The firefight's over. And that's when we reconsolidated with you guys. And I just took up like a security position on a corner of a building or whatever. Uh, and that's when they started to bring out those casualties. They started, yeah, they started bringing out the casualties, uh, which was just one guy. But this kid came out. He was probably about 13 or 14. And in his wheelbarrow, he has a, a, you know, a grown man in a white man dress with a black beard. And by that point, his turban had been knocked off. And this kid very deftly, I was actually really impressed by his agility. He had the full-grown man in a wheelbarrow, and he pushed him across essentially like a like an eight-inch log across this canal, and brought him to us. And he had been shot in the arm and the stomach. Um, I've often wondered if that was if that was the guy in the doorway. I don't know. I'll never know, and that's fine. Um, but yeah, we we administered aid. Uh, the medevac came and picked him up, and he died on the way to calf. I think. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's kind of like the weird part about that whole experience was we had this really intense firefight, and then we went into a security posture for quite a while while the medics treated that guy. They called in a medevac bird, and they took him away. So, I mean, that was probably another hour of us just sitting there before we moved. Yeah, and the medevac took a long time to get there, too. Yeah. Because it wasn't a pro. No, I mean, and that's it's one of the weirder things about the war at that time was the fact that we were medevacking out, uh, you know, enemy soldiers. Which Geneva Convention requires us to, to render aid, uh, but I'm, I'm no expert on the Geneva Convention. I'm pretty sure it doesn't require us to medevac enemy soldiers uh, to the rear like that. You know, a medevac, an air medevac is supposed to be uh, for urgent surgical and like urgent medical conditions, and uh, you know, a civilian I would get, but I mean, we we knew, we knew this guy wasn't a civilian, so. But you know, I guess it's just one of the things that makes us different than them is that we did render that kind of care when possible. And it was possible there. I mean, there was a clear HLZ. It wasn't like we were, had to hump his body, you know, 20 clicks to get him out of there. There was an HLZ right there. And at this point, I'm still sitting in that security posture. I'm soaked. Like, my gun is covered in mud. I'm, like, trying, like, using a stick to try to make <laughs> make a channel through the barrel so that if I do have to fire it again, that it will be fine. And as I'm messing with that, like, just a million things running through my mind. Like, I just about died in my first firefight. And it had nothing to do with being shot at. Um... So my, my adrenaline is through the roof just from this near-death experience that was basically just drowning. Uh, that could have happened, you know, Pensacola. But as I'm, like, contemplating this and, like, you're start, starting to get out of the game. It's like, you know, you're on patrol, you're on alert, you're fighting, you're in the game, like, you're totally focused. And then you start to, like, fall out of, like, focus. And, like, you start, once you start to do that retrospection, like, you're kind of not in it. And what snapped me out was uh, Lieutenant Persons came up. He was like, hey, man, you doing all right? I was like, yeah. Roger that, sir. I'm good. He's like, okay, good. Here. And he, he holds out a mine detector. He's like, you're going to clear the rest of the way. I was like, oh, great. Thanks. <laughs> uh, so he hands me that, and I clear across that little bridge you were talking about, um, cleared up to the entrance of the building that they had been shooting at us from. And at that point, I think they sent in the dog. The dog cleared the rest of the, the building. And then it was uh, our fire team took up security on the north end of the building, looking to the north, while your squad... 
uh, cleared the compound with uh, the, the dog teams and uh, leadership and stuff like that. So I think there's only like four or five of us out on that, on that north end, just kind of sitting there. And while you guys were in there, our squad leader decides now's a good time to take a piss, which kind of violates the rules of combat. Because everybody Absolutely. knows as soon as you decide you're going to go to the bathroom, that that's when the enemy's going to decide to shoot at you. you, know, uh, dude, you... I, I almost got shot taking a whiz one time. Oh, yeah. 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 I think a bunch day. of people have almost gotten shot. <laughs> take, yeah. to take a whiz. I know, I know Phillips for sure. Yeah. Almost got domed trying to take a, a whiz. Yeah. Um, so he goes to take a piss and immediately well, we take fire. But it's only four of us. Everyone else is inside the building. So no one else is in a position to actually return fire. Uh, so, but I am, and like two other people are, so we just, we sprayed like they were from the North. We knew generally where they were, uh, but we didn't have that telltale V this time. Mm. Uh, we just, there was a grape hut and a canal to our North and they were firing from the grape hut. So we just lit up that grape hut. Yeah. But since I had a clear, you know, I had cover that I'd already established and, you know, I knew where they were and there was no one else around. I got, I think I dumped like two mags in just that one little thing. Yeah, good work. I didn't need to. I could have fired yeah. two rounds. It would have been fine. <laughs> it would have scared them off just as bad, but it was cool yeah. to like <laughs> combat. Should yeah. we, uh, have we covered what grape puts are for the for the people who aren't familiar? No. It was actually one of the things we did not cover in our intro episode, which I thought was a little bit of a, a, a rob of our yeah. listeners. So we'll go ahead and talk about that. Luke, tell us about a grape hut. So a grape hut is a bunker, period. <laughs> Yeah, but what's its intended purpose? <laughs> a grape hut is a structure that the locals would build, and it was you know a mud hut just like everything else there, but it had these slots in it that were kind of alternating, and they were in rows from the floor to the ceiling of these things, and they would alternate. And when it come time to harvest the grapes, the locals would hang the grapes over some sticks that were stuck in these slots to dry for, you know, processing or whatever they do with them uh and so the walls on these things were a couple of feet thick i mean and and they had all these little slots in them and so they were essentially and there's one way in one or no usually there would be a door in both ends and they'd be pretty tall they might be 10 or 15 feet tall really thick mud walls easy to defend um and a natural a natural firing position because you could shoot from those little slots Mm -hmm. and uh, nobody'd ever be able to to get you you know um so we got hit from the great putts a lot. Uh, and we weren't really able to do much with them other than suppress them unless you could get birds on station until we actually got the Carl Gustav, um, which is a beautiful weapon platform. And we'll talk more about it later. But essentially, it, it allowed us to actually punch, punch through those walls and those great putts um, with an exploding 84-millimeter anti-tank round. So Well, yeah, and that's, that's at this time, we were only carrying laws which is a very light uh, anti-tank, we- anti-tank weapon, hence the name LAW, and AT-4s, which was a more supposed to be a more powerful anti-tank rocket. And our experiences with using both of those against the Grey Putts early in deployment was a total failure. They, they didn't even make a dent. They maybe made a scorch mark on it. Uh, I mean, you're talking like these... The, the walls of these things are like 18 inches to two feet thick. Like these weren't, if you could like pour, you know, rebar enforced 
concrete that was a foot and a half thick. That's about the strength of these things. Yeah, they were gnarly. But at the same time, you could walk up to it. And like, if you dug long enough for an hour, you could probably dig a hole through one. It's just really weird. They were strange. I think because the dirt and the mud that they were made out of was so dry and hard that it made for this really concretey natural barrier. Um, yeah, so they made they made natural fighting positions, and the Taliban used them. And actually, we you know we used them for a few patrol bases along the way as well. Uh, when we do these larger clearing operations and stuff. Um, I've, I've slept in them. I've climbed on top of them and shot people from them. I've been shot mm-hmm. at from them. <laughs> like I've been discovered, <laughs> yeah. like, And it's kind of crazy we forgot to mention them in our orientation episode because they're probably 50% of all of the buildings Yeah. in, in Panjway were these, were these gray pots. You had the Kalats, which were the villages, and you had the fields and the walls. But other than those, it was just a gray pot. And you had to have these so that they could dry their grapes. Yeah. So they were everywhere. And another reason they were good fighting positions for the Taliban is because they were on the outskirts of town. So they could shoot out from town, you know, take a little jaunt down the street, jump into a grape hut. We'd be out there in the fields and they could open up on us from these things. Yep. And there's usually, so it's kind of, it's like a rectangular structure and there's a door on either end. So that gives them, if they engage us from one end out the door, they can escape out the back and we can't do anything about it because... Like they've always got that second exit. Yeah, for sure. So we started pushing north. Uh, y'all took a little bit of contact. It wasn't too bad, if my memory serves me correctly. No, no, no. We, we definitely uh, reacted with an excessive amount of disproportionate force. <laughs> Which is good. That's what, you, that's what we were trained Love to do. Love it. <laughs> we don't fight there. Yeah. And so we started pushing out of there uh, to get back to the trucks, which were up, uh, up just uh, – were they on Hyena? They were on Hyena, yep. So we had about a three, three, I want to say three-click walk north, Mm. give or take. Yeah, so we started pushing out of there, and we got to the trucks, and it was this, like, sense of relief. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But also, simultaneously, when we got into the trucks, is we were beginning to crash from the adrenaline rush. And so... The adrenaline that hits your system, I mean, it's like mainlining the stuff. And it's essentially you get high, really, because all the endorphins and the dopamines and stuff that are kicking off in your system, it sends your body into this really crazy state. And I've never done anything since. And I'm not really an adrenaline junkie, so I I have never, like, skydived or anything. But I've never done anything since that, that has reached that same level of adrenaline high that you get in combat. Yeah, and we would experience this to, like, a... Extreme degree. The next time we got into a gunfight, um, which was in Jarendai, a little bit further to the west, uh, as part of a kind of a recon operation. And what made that one worse was when we took contact. We ended up bounding backwards over open ground, which was something we didn't do very often in Panjway. There wasn't a whole lot of open ground, uh, but in this case, we had to because we were pinned down in the open. We had to bound backwards over a couple hundred meters of open ground. So you'd have one fire team coming back and taking up a position and shooting at this village while the other fire team is running past them to get to the next position and it was you know just this constant moving for you know 10-15 minutes until we got back into some grape rows and some cover and it just you like you say it's like mainlining something it's like mainlining adrenaline yeah and (laughs) you you are faster you you move without any kind of worry about your your fitness or fatigue physical capabilities you just do what you need to do because your life is on the line but mm-hmm. then once that threat goes away and your body kind of is like okay bro time to relax you're like you'd be like if you yeah you just crash because it'd yeah. be like 
hey, did you know that you could run a four-minute mile? Because you just did, and now your legs are <laughs> falling off. Yeah. And I remember that first after that first firefight, as we started to get closer to the trucks, and I, my body began to kind of like realize I was relatively, you know, I was starting to get to that point of safety. I remember my legs and my muscles just like seizing up on me, like painfully. Mm-hmm. Like my leg muscles were fucking wrecked. And I just remember thinking like, man, what the hell's wrong with me? Like, why am I so smoked out? I was having a hard time. I was sucking. I was My legs were hurting. And then, it, you know, for some reason, it just didn't dawn on me until that second firefight when we had to move across that open ground and that same crash happened. And I was like, dude, of course, it's the adrenaline dump. Like, your your body is trying to recuperate from this massive dump of adrenaline. Yeah. But what's really interesting about this adrenaline rush is that the more time you spend in combat and the more combat you see, by the end of the deployment, you almost, like, just like any, actually not even by the end, just a few months in, um, you almost just like any other substance that we abuse, alcohol or whatever, you you learn to manage the high, if you will. And so you actually become better at controlling this dump so that you don't have that crash. And so you can essentially ride it out and come out in the back end and still be physically able to continue your mission and continue pushing. Well, and towards the end also, we, we stop. You get to the point where you're no longer reacting with panic or like reflex and you're not running and you're not like jumping and doing all these crazy things you you have the maturity and the experience at that point to be like okay i'm being shot at i'm okay there's no need to climb this grape wall and like you know be juan rambo i can just stay where i am and i can move slowly from cover to cover and if i need to move quickly i just do it for a brief moment and you don't physically overexert yourself in these situations so that when that adrenaline does purge you didn't do some physical feat while you were high on adrenaline that your body can't compensate for. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, and I think you just, you grow into it in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, then sure. I think when you get to that point, it's a different kind of, it's the experience is different. You know, like the way you experience a firefight, the way that you experience combat is a completely different sensation. You know, I'm sure we talked to, you know, some, some soft guys or, uh, regiment guys that have you know been in many 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 firefights they'd say yeah the first like five or six we that was, that was totally a thing but by the end i just kind of got to the point where it didn't affect me as much and yeah you just you get you like you said you get used to it you get yeah. used to that dose of adrenaline and it probably takes a more significant event which is why a lot of those a lot of guys do become adrenaline junkies because over time like they don't know they no longer get the adrenaline from that particular act they have to step it up so that they can mm-hmm. feel like that again and I think, you know, this this is, might be a little bit controversial <laughs> of a, an opinion to state, but, and I think a lot of, like, medals that get handed out can be owed to that on some level. That yeah. adrenaline, that next adrenaline rush, it's like, you know, the thing that you're doing to push the boundaries of what you can do in that space, uh, usually that's when people start getting awards slapped on them. Yeah, for, for better or worse, I mean. Yeah, yeah, for better or for worse, yeah. yeah. Maybe I'm wrong in that. Maybe that's just a personal conjecture. But well, I'm saying that there's a lot that plays into those kind of situations. I think one, uh, you, you can't discount courage uh, or bravery yeah, at all. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have the pretty controversial opinion myself that you can't be brave or courageous if you're not fucking terrified. If you aren't yeah. fucking terrified, then whatever you're doing is just instinct or it's training. It's not courage. Yeah. And in hindsight, it's really courageous and it's really brave. But at the time, a lot of people were just like, no, I, I just did what I had to do. And a lot of these guys that 
receive mm. these big awards, Medal of Honor and stuff, they'll they'll tell you, I just did what I had to do. I wasn't thinking yeah. about how dangerous it was or anything like that. And it doesn't make the act itself any less impressive. Um, but I feel like for someone to truly be courageous and brave, they have to have that thought in their mind, like, what I'm about to do is dangerous. And I'm a little scared, but I'm going to do it anyway because it has to be done. Yeah. And when you talk about that fear and that kind of terror that one feels in these moments and that doesn't necessarily and i think this is what gets misinterpreted a lot too and this is something we'll probably spend more time on and go into more detail on later on but you also have that fear and concern for someone else you know this is one of your buddies whose life and livelihood you care about so when these really brave or courageous things happen, it might be just a kind of a transference of that fear. It's like, I'm not really concerned for my own life or my own right. well-being right now, but I'm really concerned about his, you know? Right. Um, and in, in those cases, you know, that would force me to eat my words that I just said. And it, it is courageous and is because yeah. you are fearful for him. You don't yeah. want your buddy to be hurt or to die or he's out there. Yeah. Uh, there's a great shot of images. It's not video, but and it might be video actually, but it's Marines in Fallujah. And one guy goes down in the middle of the street. Like, it just drops like a rock. You know he's dead. And then the medic runs out after him into this firefight, open street, against every single doctrine or training that he's supposed to have. You know, because that guy's probably dead. If he's not dead, he's going to be because they're just going to keep shooting at his body. Yeah. Medic runs out. Medic gets shot. Done. Down. Dead. Immediately drops. And I think one more person goes out after this medic. And you, if, if you look up the video, you'll know it because the medic's wearing a big black backpack. Yeah. And then I another guy goes out and he gets shot. And we were yeah. shown this video in basic training. We were shown it in the pre-deployment. Like, hey, do not do this. Because mm-hmm. one casualty just turned into three. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it's, um, it's a weird game that you play whenever these occasions arise you know, a firefight or especially IED strike, you know, it's this weird game between your natural instinct of self-preservation. You're managing the fear and you're managing and you're beginning to control and regulate that adrenaline high so that you can ride it out. So it carries you further. <laughs> mm-hmm. And while also, Oh, while also like deeply caring about, what's happening to the guys around you, you know, right. and especially when you're there for longer periods of time and you have all these experiences together and that bond begins to strengthen. Then when something does happen to those guys, you're this individuality of self-concern kind of falls to the wayside and it becomes more of a group think kind of thing. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Or am I just, am I waxing too philosophical? Nah, you're probably waxing a little bit philosophical, but you're not wrong. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, and this is going to come up a lot. There's going to be a lot of times, uh, Clark, Perez, Dennison, um, not so much on Perez. Perez just, you know, he just got rocked. Love you, Perez. Um, but, you know, there we, you know, a lot of circumstances where that instinctual reaction, that brotherly love, that desire to help uh, hurt guys too. So, and, and so I think that topic is going to definitely going to come back up, that whole, uh, you know, brotherly love, you know, self-sacrifice kind of thing. Yeah. It's incredibly complex. And I think that our natural, our natural instinct as people is to see things in a binary. And when, you know, when you're on the back end of an incredibly complex situation, then you start to apply labels so that it makes sense. 
Mm-hmm. So the complexities behind a courageous act isn't just as simple as somebody having the balls to go out and drag his buddy to cover or whatever the situation is. It's um, it's more complex than that. It's just that in the backwash of all that, there's a system that tries to make sense of it. And that kind of maybe, I don't want to say depreciates, but it labels the those complexities in some way. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that more or less wraps up the story of our first firefight. It does. Um, and it took a good bit longer to get through it than I thought it would, to be completely honest. So, uh, what I'd like to go into now is a brief discussion with Luke about some of his personal experiences. And uh, I think after that, he's probably going to return the favor. Yeah. So, to our astute watchers of the uh, video version of the podcast, you'll notice we're wearing different clothes uh, because it took us about two weeks to get back to finishing this episode. Um, But we really felt it was important to give you a a more personal idea of who we are um, and what our experience has meant to us. Uh, Because in the upcoming interviews and episodes, we're going to spend a lot of time talking to uh, other people that we worked with and served with uh, and other people that served in the area. And it's going to be a lot of them talking. Um, so this will be kind of your last chance to get to know Luke and I and our experiences for quite a while. <clears throat> yeah, I feel like any time that our piece of the puzzle is being brought up later on, it's going to be a natural, in a natural conjunction with what somebody else is saying. And obviously the further outside of our immediate platoon or squad that we get the less and less that Curtis and I can contribute. So, you know, it's just an opportunity for us to kind of get some, some base work down so that everybody can see where we're at and then we can, um, you know, go from there. So kind of driving off of that, uh, Luke, this was not your first deployment, right? Um, but this was your first like you know introduction to combat. Was, was this deployment the first time you encountered an IED at all? I mean, had you seen them in Iraq or anything before? What was your exposure to the IED threat before? So in Iraq, um, our op tempo was actually pretty damn crazy. It was almost as high as it was in Afghanistan. It's about the same, actually. Um, but we were going out every night doing counter IED operations, and we did it for months and months and months uh, during the middle of our deployment especially. And so... You know, during the course of those nightly operations, we actually, we, you know, we busted a couple guys. Um, the platoon did. I actually wasn't out there that night. They busted like a small cell of guys trying to pin, uh, put an ID in the ground. Um, and then uh, our platoon didn't experience any any kind of crazy interactions. So then there's some suspected IEDs. You'd call up EOD. They'd be hours getting there. And then they would just, you know, either, either blow it or just, you know, declare it. Nothing, nothing. That's a big threat or anything. Um, we did, unfortunately, lose uh, two very fine soldiers to an IED strike. as uh, Lieutenant Robert Collins and uh, Specialist Anthony Blunt. Um, and that was just a bad situation with some villagers that let an IED maker uh, in place about a 200-pound IED that went off under their MRAP and uh, killed Blunt almost immediately from what I heard, and then Collins died on the medevac out. So, But, yeah, 
that was pretty much it, you know. And and there was a V bid that went off on the Cav platoon um, right outside of the gate in Missoula, and uh, we were actually on the way back from a mission when those guys got hit. But uh, so that was, uh, you know, all of my IED experience at that point was proximal because the actual combat when we were in Iraq was really basically non-existent almost in the entire country. So that means, I guess, that your first exposure to an IED or that, that degree of combat was Afghanistan yeah. in 2012. I mean, I didn't even earn my CIB in Iraq. So Yeah. And we, we, and we went into it knowing that would be the case. Right. Yeah. So I guess then with if you follow the same question, what was your first real exposure to combat in 2012? Was it the firefight we just talked about or... Were there other, you know, do we, did you hit any IEDs on patrols or find IEDs on patrols or anything like that? Um, I remember earlier patrols finding IEDs. Unfortunately, uh, nobody had hit any by then. Uh, sure. So that first firefight was definitely my first, like, you know, real introduction to combat. And that was a proper introduction for sure. But as far as IED threat, you know, like we mentioned already a little bit, it took a while for us through a very unfortunate series of trial and error to figure out how to navigate that whole sphere of our fight. And we had been on patrols where we'd found them. I remember one patrol up north. Um, I can't remember which village it was in, but it was the last major village on the west side of Route Brown before it got the hyena. And Yeah, that was um, just north of Doors High, yeah. if I remember correctly, just south of that ANCOP checkpoint. Mm-hmm. And the and the dogs hit a bunch of IEDs. Like the 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 dogs actually sniffed out a handful that day. So that's probably like a my... daisy chain. At like at the, yeah, uh, right outside of the the burial area, if I yep. remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was a daisy chain. I think there's like three or four, maybe five in there. Yeah. Um, and so that was probably my first, at least from my, my memory, that was my first proper interaction. Um, but my first real encounter with the IED uh, was an was when the engineers got hit. Um. We were walking in to link up with the rest of the platoon to walk them back to the patrol base that night. And I was about 15 or 20 meters from uh, from their foremost element when they stepped on that IED. And so I kind of watched all this unfold from a few meters away while I was pulling security uh, because they had, you know, the whole, they had the whole squad basically treating those guys. So, you know, yeah. my job was to turn the pivot and, security because we'd heard about these IED initiated ambushes and we were right. all kind of waiting for that to kick off. Well, and I feel like that that aspect of the fight in, in Panjway meant that there were a lot of incidents similar to that that mm-hmm. I was around for but didn't fully uh, participate in or experience mm-hmm. uh, because there's you just couldn't. There, you were walking in a file so you're 30 people back or there's a high ID threat so you, you can't really move. Mm-hmm. So even firefights that happened to our platoon or squad that I, I didn't participate in because it was happening in a place where I couldn't participate. It yeah. wasn't even affecting me. Like yeah. and that's how long our formations was that you could have firefights that would affect a portion of the element and the other one would be totally fine, totally safe. Yeah, and I, I tell people all the time when we have these conversations, I wouldn't say. I don't tell them all the time because I don't really talk about this stuff <laughs> very sure. openly. Yeah. But when I'm talking about it with someone – I described to them, like, you know, in combat, especially the kind of combat we saw, just a few feet can completely change your experience. You know, if I had been 10 meters closer to the engineers, I probably would have gotten knocked on my ass and got caught in the dust cloud, you know. 
and like when it first went off, I thought Sarnot was hit because I could all I could see was his. I, I was watching him, and then he got blown on his ass, and I could see his arm kind of hanging out of the smoke cloud and the dust cloud with his with his weapon, and I had that that feeling like oh shit, Sarnot's hit, you know. Um, so it was it was a it was a big IED, yeah, uh, for sure. But yeah, you know, just a few feet or even a couple meters can mean the difference of like getting riddled with bullets and being relatively safe behind the cover of a mud wall, you know? So it's just chance encounters. A lot of it, so much of it is left up to chance. I mean, that that's true for a huge percentage of our deployment mm-hmm. because, you know, that inches or feet makes a difference. Like we literally marked a path everywhere we walked with spray paint that you stayed inside the lines and you were safe. But if you went six inches or a foot outside the line like you're you're no man's land and yeah. we had an nco and another platoon that stepped outside the lines and lost his leg yeah so we're literally playing a game of inches uh yeah. to to cross these huge <laughs> paths of ground yeah. and to try and effectively patrol an area that didn't didn't want us there so what was I mean, for you what was your first proper real introduction to ieds do you remember <laughs> uh it was it was so I had the, the privilege and the pleasure of being trained as one of our first counter IED guys. Um, and I ended up doing that job for almost the entire deployment, which, which sucked. Um, but in the beginning days, we were real gung-ho about it. So they, not only did they train me on the mine detector, which at that time was just a metal detector. We didn't have the, the mine hounder Chia yet. Mm-hmm. Um, which at the time seemed simple. You sweep for metal. If it barks metal at you, you stop. What I didn't know was that the ground was full of fucking metal it was just all metal it was like decades of soviet american british yeah you know forces dumping their shit all over the place the afghan people just threw their crap all over the place and Mm -hmm. uh, they were modern enough to have metal so like it just went off all the time like a metal detector was almost useless unless you found something big because the amount of metal that they put in those ieds was about as much as was already in the ground Mm. but um anyway so in addition to learning that they they gave us these little non-conductive probes were about 12 inches long they -hmm. looked metal but they were not metal they were some other non-conductive material if you know what it is feel free to comment below and they trained us that if we found something suspicious with the metal detector to low crawl up to where we thought this thing was and poke it with these non-metallic rods and they trained us how to do that like sounds like a good way to get blown in half by like low crawling over a pressure plate well after we left uh, an eod tech um and i can't remember his name i apologize that that's what happened to him he was mm-hmm. on his belly up against an id uh investigating it and it went off and mm. killed him yeah um rest in peace uh so they trained us to do that but i'm you know i'm not an eod tech i'm not an engineer i'm at 11 bravo um, just out of basic training so they that was part of what they taught us though initially and mm-hmm. i think that was a big failure in in the army's eod or not eod but ied counter ied training program was they're putting a lot of faith in in people to be experts on something that uh there's no and there's no way that a pfc straight out of basic was going to be an expert on counter ied tactics mm-hmm. by the end i was but <laughs> march of 2012 no yeah. Uh, so I remember we were on a patrol, one of our very first patrols, and I'm clearing, I'm up front, and 
I find a circular disc in the ground because we had been briefed and it was a thing that there were actual still landmines in Panjway. Yeah. And that the Taliban would put a landmine on top of a jug of HME to get like a double kick. Mm. So I had a metallic hit, had a circular device in the ground, which is unnatural. And that's one thing that we were trained to look for was, you know, there's two things that are unnatural in nature, straight lines and circles. Yeah. Um, so there's a circle in the dirt. And so I rolled low crawled up to this thing like I was trained to do and I poked it. And it was about that time that uh, squad, my squad leader, Sergeant Bally, uh, one, one of his earlier moments where he was actually um, not awful to me, <laughs> uh, was like, this is fucking stupid. I'm not going to lose a guy because he's poking an IED. So he's like, get the fuck off that thing. And he told me to get off of it. And we bypassed it. We walked around it, called EOD. They came, you know, this was when we saw the Air Force EOD guys. They were a little mm. slow. And they showed up like an hour and a half later and they just dragged they just dragged some C4 into the middle of the field and blew it up and it just was just a piece of plastic. It wasn't an IED. Yeah. But then they found one. <laughs> After we found that, <laughs> they, we went to the Adams Eye School mm-hmm. and they found some shit there. And then they blew that up. I too. remember that now. And that was that was before our first firefight. So that was that was pretty early on in the deployment. Yeah, I remember the Adams Eye walking in there and, and finding all those IEDs that were kind of scattered around that school. Yeah. Yep. Which, you know, for people who weren't in, in the Sparwangar AO, that was a pretty popular hangout spot for the Taliban. They'd come in there to sleep at night and that kind of thing. And I kind of run out of that old abandoned school, like the ones we talked about in the first episode. Mm-hmm. And we made a habit of going back all the time. We did. Like, we never went through the front door, except for that very first time we went there. Every other mm-hmm. time we climbed over a wall and got in there. Mm-hmm. And we would find... <sighs> This was the biggest shame. Like they had, they had nice school desks, like really nice school desks, and we found that they had cut up the school desks to use the wood to make pressure plates. Yeah, yeah, I remember that now. Wow. <laughs> uh, so that was our American taxpayer dollars at work building IEDs to to blow up Amer- Americans' legs off. It was great. It's real, real rewarding. Yeah. <laughs> so another, um, you know, in in the theme of first. Another significant first is when you see for the first time some some real carnage, you know, when you see somebody really get messed up. Um, for me, it was the engineers. Um, but like I said, I watched it all unfold from you know fifteen meters away, so I, didn't, I wasn't like right up in it. But that was uh, <clears throat> you know that was a rough one because for obvious reasons, you know, they both passed. But it was uh, when I look back on it now. And I think about watching Pinnock basically kind of fading out of consciousness. And when he would come to, he would he would kind of lean up and he would omit that terrible moan. And, uh, you know, it was this strange feeling that I had where I was, I, I knew, like, he was not going to make it, you know. And, like, no matter how hard, and the wounds were severe. Like, he, he had lost his leg way up next to the base of his pelvis so there was really no room to put a tourniquet on or anything and uh, I just remember you know once I saw him you know saw his wounds and I saw his body language and the way I the way only way I can think to describe it is it's like you can read death on a person and you could you could read it on him and that was a that was a terrible terrible thing to have witnessed and <clears throat> but it was kind of a, a foundational experience for me going forward but i'd say the first time i really got my 
you know, a really, really close up where the Clark got hit, I think, in terms of someone getting hurt. Yeah, and I think for our, for our squad, at least, uh, the platoon, you know, second squad, uh, Sergeant Nisialder's squad, they were there for the engineers. So that was their introduction. That was their, their crash course on on uh, human trauma. Ours was, was Clark. Um, but we, we kind of had inklings before that. We had a, an, an ANA soldier that was killed on one of our patrols uh, by gunfire. Um, we had come across, you know, I think there was the guy that got hit by the Hellfire and tried to pretend that he hadn't been hit by a Hellfire. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we knew he had. Um, that was early on with Doc Salvador. Mm-hmm. and But I think the... I'm trying to remember when the... The guy on the motorcycle that, that got hit late. by the Hellfire. That was late, yeah. But that was that was probably the most gruesome. Yeah. Um, that was the mo- most gruesome bodily injuries I saw the entire yeah. deployment. Yeah. Was was him. Uh, and, yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't have pictures of that, and we wouldn't share it if we did. No. Uh, but here's a video of the Hellfire strike because I don't care. I'm not <laughs> the army anymore. Army can eat. Army can fuck off. This is awesome. <laughs> and he was Taliban. You know, he was hundred percent Taliban. They hundred percent knew he was a bad dude. So there's no and and everything was cool. Like it was pretty clean. Pretty clean hit. Oh yeah, yeah. I I, mean, I think it was a it was a drone that shot him, or they said it was a. I don't know who fucking shot. It doesn't matter. It's cool. <laughs> yeah. as someone I mean, who launched Hellfires, I'm actually pretty impressed. <laughs> it's, a hard, <laughs> it's a hard target to hit. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So it probably was a drone because they have better targeting systems than we did in the Apache, and which is pretty sad yeah yeah that was definitely the most gruesome scene that i ever saw i think these injuries that we came across it's we had to see them for the first time at some point um and we had to see the worst of them and the best of them you know like voices or million dollar wound that barely bled just this little hole that Mm -hmm. uh went into him and he's it was a miracle what happened to voice yeah, um, to have a, a a bullet enter your your pelvis with no exit wound and no major bleeding, like he's mm-hmm. the probably the luckiest gunshot victim ever. And he is, um, you know, I'm sure he has pains and stuff, but it didn't affect his life. Yeah, and that's another thing. Like these wounds vary so much depending on the particularities of the situation. You know, it's just like even even. IED strikes are gonna be different on different people. Like they're gonna, this how the concussion works and the angle of their body or whatever. So it's just like Clark mangled his hand as well as his leg. You know. Yeah, and that's that's a interesting factor too. Is all the guys that lost like one leg, you know, the the leg that wasn't ripped off was just mangled, just yeah. absolutely shattered, and that really complicated their recovery actually. Um, to the point where, like, Dennison, who lost both of his legs, recovered faster than Clark did with just one leg. Mm-hmm. Because that, that good leg, because it had been shattered, and then when they set it, it doesn't always, it just never sets perfect. Yeah. So you get these little bone spurs that grow out from the, the fractures and, like, stuff. And the actual, the pieces of your, when the pieces of the bone pop off from the main bone, there's little tiny fragments in your flesh. And the bone tries to, like, reconnect to those pieces. Mm-hmm. So you look at an x-ray of these guys, and it looks like a pineapple, where you have, like, these, the bone is trying to reconnect to those fragments in the flesh, and it is incredibly painful mm-hmm. uh, for, for life. Um, and Clark had to have many surgeries where 
they had to go in and you know surgically remove those or file them down like you know the injury the amputation was not the end of a lot of these guys is uh you know recovery yeah exactly it's just uh it's just like we talked about a few feet making a difference injuries you know they vary so much depending on what it is and where it is and you know the volume you know and the size you know ids the the game was always size is it you know three pounds or is it 20 you know and that's going to completely change the game for for what to expect out of that situation yeah and you step on a three pound ied you're going to be uh above the ankle amputee yeah you step on a 20 pound ied you're a double amputee at 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 least At, at best yeah really yeah, yeah. More likely, you won't, you won't make it. Yeah, and like you said, it depends on how you do it. Like you know, Todd mm-hmm. when he stepped on his IED, uh, it, it low ordered I think a little, but also he was in full sprint when he hit it. Yeah. So right. he wasn't directly over top of that explosion when it went off because he was already halfway past it by the time it connected. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, his his foot was not as uh, severely wounded as it could have been. Yeah. Uh, and, so I mean, it, it it just varies so much, and but the nice thing is, uh, combat wounds are fairly consistent. So they did really. I thought we got really good training on how to treat people. They did. Yeah, because uh, you can really narrow it down. I mean, mostly it's you know you, you're throwing a tourniquet on, you're packing a wound, and you're wrapping it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, ABC. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and mm-hmm. you know, fortunately. For our squad, we never had to deal with any kind of like uh, chest punctures or bullet yeah. wounds that were, you know, untreatable. Um, other other platoons, they did. Uh, they had to deal with that. Uh, both the dog handler and Corporal Luxmore had uh, gunshot wounds that were very difficult to treat. And uh, they lost their lives, unfortunately. Um, but for the most part... You know, we had 29 Purple Hearts from our company on that deployment. And all but, like, three of them were very simple to treat. You know, pack, wrap, get them on a bird. And 30 30 years ago, you know, the training and the materials weren't there for that to be so quick. Yeah, and the, the infrastructure for medevacs and stuff too, you know would have been a different game because we were a 20 minute flight from calf you know now getting somebody to an hlz is a wholly totally different <laughs> situation but yeah so and, and we weren't trained like medics we didn't the way i'm not saying our training was phenomenal but for the the kind of wounds that we had yeah. anticipated to experience i thought our, our training for that was excellent yeah, I mean, you get the. I mean, stop the bleeding, you know, and like we were fortunate in that by the time we deployed, they had figured out that people could have tourniquets on for long periods of time. So you know, this myth, of, this myth of not being able to wear it for so long, people could have it on for hours and hours before they ran the risk of losing the limb. Uh, so because of that, you know, the guys would be a calf, and you know, they were able to keep keep body parts. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, and huge shout out to the pilots and flight medics uh, that flew for dust off. I mean, 
Apache pilot. <laughs> we all, we've got a running uh, rivalry with the Blackhawk guys because we're better than them. Uh, just kidding, guys. Uh, but in all seriousness, like what the medevac crews do is just so beyond impressive, and the risks that they take with their their lives and their aircraft to to get you know some Joe Eleven Bravo to Kandahar and inside the Golden Hour is just incredible. It's like landing, you know, a lot of the time those those guys would land under fire in a really bad, a really small HLC to make your butt pucker just watching them come in. You know, it's like landing a beer can at a shooting range. <laughs> <laughs> This is a bullet magnet, you know, and it, and they're not armored or anything, so it takes balls to get in there and do that. Especially knowing that you're just you're not going to be shooting back and everything like that. You're getting dudes and running. Yeah, they and they have no crew serve weapons. You know, they are not because they wear that red cross. They can't have crew serve weapons. They're, mm-hmm. you know, they're staffed by medics and a flight engineer. Like they don't have a way to defend themselves. We are there to defend them. So yeah, uh, I have immense and no medevac pilot. From 2012, I don't care if he flew us out or not, is ever going to, you know, paper his own drinks around me, period. <laughs> yeah, um, and sure. I, when I find the ones that lifted our guys out there, like, it's on. Um, For sure. The ones who got uh, Akoa and uh, that A&E guy off of the deck, that was yeah. some impressive stuff right there. Yeah. Kind of continuing along with this theme of carnage and, uh, you know, destruction or whatever i mean do you remember what would have been your scariest uh moment on that deployment (laughs) in vivid detail okay yeah um you know one of the things that happens this is gonna happen because you're in combat you're gonna have these close calls you know sure yeah and uh, the close calls you know i think scariest and the immediate visceral experience of that moment is probably the scariest for me, this particular one. And I've, you know, I had a few, a handful of pretty solid close calls, you know, the bullets whizzing by, or, you know, I had bullets walk up the armor on a truck while I was trying to take a piss off the side of the MRAP. <laughs> and, uh, you know, little, little instances like that, that first firefight, even though I didn't know any better at the time, was a close one. Um, but for me, I had a really, really bad close ambush. It was uh, Lieutenant Kohler's first firefight, uh, or our platoon, or our squad that was out there, which is already a really small element of maybe, there might have been 10 of us maybe, including the ALP. So we got split up, and you guys pushed north, and you guys got into a really close and thick one. So the back element was actually pulling security for you guys to make a maneuver so you can move on these Taliban that they had uh, eyes on with ISR. And so I was standing up. Uh, it was during my brief tenure as a saw gunner, which I loathed. But so I was standing up on this wall, fully exposed to my six with my saw gun or my saw up pulling security for y'all on this gray putt. And right behind me was kind of an open field. And there was a mud wall that was probably about no more than 15 meters it was probably more like 10 meters so super close and this dude laid a pkm up on that wall and opened up on us uh in that corner of that little field and then a guy down at grape row opened us on us with an ak and so i went from just pulling security to getting hit from my to my six o'clock from 10 meters away and the bullets were, you know, snapping all around me on the walls, and the tree branches are getting shot off and falling down. And so I just spun around, and I hit the prone, and I could see that dust 
from the muzzle flash of that PKM. And so I just opened up with that saw and held the trigger down to that, you know, 50 round drum magazine was empty and he swapped rounds with me and we swapped them back and forth. And one round hit so close when I was in the prone, it hit so close to my face that it actually kicked dirt up onto my face. And I, I, I flinched even as I was pulling the trigger. Um, I flinched from that dirt kicking up and I could, you know, it was probably less than a foot away from my face, probably about eight or nine inches. And, you know, of course, in the moment the adrenaline's running, we finally, you know, we got everything kind of taken care of, got your heat cat out of the way. <laughs> and uh, as which we will go into detail with with color, I think. Yeah, I'm sure he's got lots to say about that. Yeah, but um, as we were walking back to the trucks, we finally got back in the trucks, and the the relative safety of the trucks kind of like created this weird space for me where all the the adrenaline was gone and all the immediacy and the need of the moment was gone and i just had like a rush of fear oh, yeah yeah <laughs> and i was um i was so scared you know because i realized how close i had come to getting killed and i took my helmet off and just sit there and like cried a hard cry for about 30 seconds and uh, just because I realized I had almost, like, literally inches. And I don't know how, because that dude, this is not an exaggeration. I would say that dude probably dumped almost 100 rounds on us. Um, he must have had a big, healthy drum bag full. But, uh, yeah, that was that was the scariest moment for me because of how close I came to, like, knowing how close I came to getting killed. You know, I don't know how. It was just a miracle, I guess that one of those bullets didn't land in my body somewhere. Well, I think, I think a lot of those experiences, like, yeah, they're scary in the moment for sure. But sometimes they're scary. You're like five minutes later and you're like, you finally have a moment to like recollect. You're like, holy shit. Well, in the moment I was just fighting, you know, I mean, I was just fighting just to go fashion firefight. And on the exfil out of there, we were so, you know, with that, that ambush was so tight and so close all of us were super on edge and we were small elements. So I wasn't able to sit there and think about it. We just pushed and bounded back to the trucks and finally got back to the trucks. But yeah, then that, the fear of the moment was like a delayed fear. Yeah. This, this, sure. and that really sunk into me. And when I got back into the trucks, it was tough. So yeah. What about you, man? Uh, hit, hit, hitting a IED with the truck. <laughs> no, no. Cause I mean, that was one, that was really early on. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was hilarious. I still think it's hilarious. Like, we hit that <laughs> we hit that sucker, blew our truck up. Our truck didn't have AC before, and then we got a brand new truck six hours later, had AC, so... But then you blew that it. truck up. No, it took us a couple months to blow that truck up. Oh, okay. I couldn't remember how <laughs> <laughs> close those IEDs were together. No, no, they are a couple months apart. Uh, and then, you know, we're smoking cigars after the first... I smoked a cigar after every IED hit, but... Uh, yeah, we're sitting in the middle of a riverbed and are totaled in that V. I mean, it's devastated. It is in pieces. Um, so it was probably a good 50 to 150-pound IED. I, I don't know exactly. It wasn't big enough to kill us, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, but doors blown open, waiting on EOD to clear us so we can even get out of the truck. We couldn't even get out. We had to mm-hmm. sit there couldn't, just in case there were secondaries. Sure. If we're just <laughs> doors off smoking cigars, blasting music. 
Happy so, to be alive. <laughs> happy to be alive. So that one wasn't too scary, uh, although the pictures are a little scary to look at. Um, no, by far the scariest moment was when uh, I took those. I took uh, two to three rounds to my rucksack uh, during the battle and shot or throat chop or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and it again, it wasn't terrifying in the moment. Like I knew we were getting shot at. We were um, there were four of us in an alley, and kind of like with your story, they had us dead to rights. You know, it was only four Americans in an alley. They had a fatal funnel. They had, they they, they clearly had set it up waiting to get as many Americans as they could in that one spot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're bouncing around. They're pinging. They're zipping. Like, I can feel the air being yep. displaced in that because it's a very narrow corridor. So a bunch of bullets going down that corridor. It's, I'm feeling it. I know they're, I know they're close. But at the moment, it's like, we got to get out of here. Like, so I, I just turned. Um. And right before that, like, uh, PSC Tallman was in front of me, and he just dropped like a rock. And I was like, nah, he's dead. Like, I'm not going to go chasing after him. Like, we'll, we'll get him here in a second once we get the fire superiority. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just pushed Roberts and Robbins, I think, into a, an alley, which was stupid because it was an unclear alley. We probably, that was dumb on my part, but I wasn't going to stand there and get shot either. Yeah. So pushed them in there. Uh, I just turned and kind of guided them in there, went in there, and then. That's when Robert Robbins was like, "Hey man, are you okay?" I was like, "Yeah man, I'm good." Why? He's like, "You got shot." I was like, no, I didn't. It's like I'm fine. And then I'm feeling just to make sure, and then I feel something wet, and I just like immediate panic. Just like yeah. that was the scariest moment when I felt when I felt that, and it, it was it was water coming out of my camelback, which had been shot. And to give like a viewers of idea of <laughs> how close that was, we wear like us our body armor our camelback and then our backpack so for it to shoot i mean it shot through the camelback sideways so you're talking an inch to the left and it's in my it's in my spine and then in addition to hitting that it also it's like two rounds went in my backpack uh and you know just missed oh i don't know c4 a claymore (laughs) 40 millimeter grenades uh any number of things that could have exploded so I had I had a little bit of a moment after that, like one we, you know, they made me take all my clothes off when we got into a compound, make sure I, I really wasn't shot, that it wasn't just adrenaline, that made me think I hadn't been shot. Um, and then I looked at all this stuff that had bullet holes in it, and that's that's when the fear really set in. I was like, I I can't do this anymore. I'm done. And I I almost quit like 30 minutes later. Like, well, I didn't because we're in the middle of a gunfight, but mentally I quit. We're pinned down in a marijuana field. I can't shoot back. Um, cause I'm surrounded by marijuana and Americans. I can't shoot blindly. I'm going to end up shooting, you know, Tom Evans at the front on accident. So never, and now I feel helpless because I can't do anything. Uh, I can't protect myself. I just survived getting shot at in that alley. And I was just like, that's it. I'm done. They can shoot me. I'm just going to stay here. Uh, and I, I bounced back, obviously, but that's when the fear was the most severe for me on the deployment. Yeah, man, and I think it's weird. It's not weird. It's actually perfectly usual that pretty much everybody has a story like that, yeah. you know? Oh, yeah. And, you know, Curtis and I have talked a lot about how we can't believe that we didn't take more casualties because everybody has close calls, like real close call stories, like similar to the ones we did. And those are just our worst close calls 
but you know we, we can both talk about moments when you've heard bullets fly over your head or you've you know you've you know, they've smacked around the walls around you or you stepped around an IED instead of on an IED or whatever and uh, you know and everybody has multiple incidents like you know incidences like that you know like Nance you know and what what came to be known as Vietnam Day <laughs> I mean he was pinned down uh, in a little divot uh, ditch you know Bally was um, in a very similar situation at throw chop the first day of throw chop you know he got caught in the open it's just completely and it was close too that guy was probably you know 15 meters away 20 meters yeah and it's it was just the nature of of that environment i think mm-hmm. um because for one as you i think you mentioned earlier in this episode or last one you know we always had more guns always yeah. Uh, they might have had the tactical advantage, but we were always outgunned them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that meant that they, if they were going to get us, they had to they had to get they had to set up a, a good ambush position, and mm-hmm. they had to be lucky. And you know, they weren't amazing infantry fighters. They were good at protecting their homeland. They knew the area and they knew how to fight, but they weren't like tactically adept people. Yeah. So they weren't very good at setting up ambushes, at least on us. I'm sure that they were much better in some areas. And I know some guys from before and after us in Panjoy and Zari would disagree with us and they got in some bad spots. This is just based on our experience. Mm-hmm. They weren't very good at setting us into ambushes. Um, so that leaves it to luck. Um, they had to get lucky. And, you know, the couple times um, they were lucky and they were able to, to get American casualties. But I feel like, they only had they had a very small time frame to to make an effect on us or, or to hurt an American because yeah. as soon as we could turn our guns and shoot, we took the advantage back. Yeah, um, yeah, that's true. Because and then we get their heads down for five to ten minutes and we had birds on station, mm-hmm. and then then it really was over for them. So they had they had a very small moment in time. So yes, we were lucky, but I think it's also because they just they just weren't lucky enough. Yeah, yeah, I think it's true. I mean, the nature of our firefights, for the most part, you know, it was just like these really quick little skirmishes that would only last a few seconds. You know, the longer ones, maybe a couple minutes, where they would duck and run down and pop up and fire again from somewhere else, and you kind of have an exchange. But I mean, really, me personally, I can only think of, off the top of my head, two or three times, including that one that you know, my scariest moment I just shared where it felt like a proper ambush, you know. Um, and that was mostly because of our tactics and the way we maneuvered. Like, we, you know, we didn't take similar routes. We changed up how we infiltrated in the areas a lot. But it also has to do with the fact that, and we started leaving at, like, you know, 11 o'clock at night. So we would be there at 4 o'clock in the morning <laughs> when they were all still sleeping, so. And, and a, lot of our, a lot of our contact, too, was it would be brief, two or three minutes, but it would be... Brief contact, strong exchange gunfire, birds on station, quiets down. When, if there's no contact, the birds have to leave. They have other places yep. that they can help. And then they leave, and it starts back up. Um, so these these firefights, in our minds, were going on for hours, even if they were only for you know, five, ten minutes at a time, um, mm-hmm. every 45 minutes, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It was, um, yeah, it was almost like clockwork. You know, usually about 10 minutes after the birds went off station, you could pretty much expect to take contact again. And it was yeah. like this game of just back and forth until 
either the mission was done or they, you know, decided to give up and go home and, or we, you know, hightailed it out of there or whatever. Yeah. I mean, and it's weird that I don't call uh, my time using the, the mind detector is my scariest moment. Um, and, and some of those were, uh, but it's just hard to compare to that. <laughs> to yeah. that one yeah for sure well you know when you're I feel like when you're using the mind sweeper stuff like sometimes you don't know who I mean how many IEDs did you step over or <sighs> did you step past you know but that's something yeah. I try not to think too much about <laughs> <laughs> well especially since the answer is double digits for sure mm-hmm. because another aspect of the IEDs and this is this is really important for the listeners to understand too is they weren't always active yeah um, you know IED just like you know your uh, your garage door opener, it's battery powered. So you take the batteries out of your garage door opener, like it, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So they would take the batteries out um, so that they could open up those roads and stuff for civilians or for their own use. And then they would run and they'd connect the battery when we were coming into town. So those IEDs were in the ground all the time. It's not like they were placing them there for us. They were just always there. And if it looked like we might walk towards one, they would, they'd activated or they'd activate them around their strongholds or whatever so the likelihood that we stepped over dozens of not activated ieds is almost a guarantee so I, yeah i guess it's time to to close this one out um, yeah for sure you know and uh, if anything while well, we've really illustrated in the last 30 minutes is that there's there's a lot that <laughs> you and i still have to talk about but we're going to have many many guests on and we'll have opportunities yeah. to kind of share some of our insights in our conversations with them so uh we're, we really look forward to to sharing our insights uh, and the insights of our guests in the next you know run however long this thing goes uh and we just want to really you know say again to our listeners these are our experiences this is what we experienced and our listeners may have experienced something different or they may have interpreted things different and that's fine uh, this this is you know our story, um, and this is uh, and we we hope it, it resonates with as many people as possible. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, you know, like Curtis said, this is just our part, and we hope that by the end of this thing, there's a nice web of a narrative to overlay on this experience that provides a lot more in depth and more more well-rounded understanding of all this stuff because obviously our perspectives are limited you know if i'm safely tucked away behind a wall but curtis is getting shot in the backpack (laughs) then our experience at that moment is going to be different so you know across everybody that we interview we're going to be able to weave these experiences into a more solid fabric if you will that's going to more readily demonstrate uh the deployment to a lot better capacity than you and i have yeah, that's, that's a good point. I mean, I apologize in advance to our listeners. You're going to hear the same stories many times yeah. from many different points of view. Um, and we may even rehash our parts of that story from time to time. Uh, but the entire goal of this project was to tell the whole story. And yeah. that means uh, from different points of view. Um, so we, an interesting thing that I kind of hope comes out of this is that even the people that we talk to get a, f- a better understanding of their own experiences. Because yeah. I, I know I have in talking to people, you know, mm-hmm. seeing, you know, Luke's point of view of the same exact firefight that I was in or Matthew Kohler's point of view of the same exact firefight that I was in. 
and just that little different angle has made my understanding of my own experiences uh, better. Yeah, yeah, certainly. It's around true for me as well. So next time on the Panjoy podcast, we're going to have uh, former captain uh, Matthew Kohler, uh, who was our platoon leader in uh, the second half of our deployment in 2012. And uh, it's, I think I think you guys will really enjoy our conversation with Matt, and uh, I think it'll be it'll be one to tune into. So make sure you set your reminder and hit subscribe, like, and uh, download the episodes as they come out.